first open up in prayer also before we get started. We'll do a quick review after we open up. Um, we covered a lot of scripture last week. Um, and then we're going to kind of kick back off again. So uh, let's open up in prayer. Um, and then we will uh, we'll get started in uh, in God's word. We're going to be in Romans chapter one. Uh, let's let's pray. Lord, uh, as we come into your house again tonight, I just want to thank you. Uh, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for all that you are, Lord. Thank you for your sovereignty. Lord, thank you for your direction that you lead us in life and how that we can be confident in the fact that no matter what comes, that uh, you are true to your word, that you are working all these things together for our good, for you've called us to your purposes in this world. And sometimes those purposes don't look like what we may have initially set out looking for ourselves. But we, we thank you and trust in you that you are uh, wiser than we and that your ways are higher and better than our own ways. Uh, Lord, um, on my heart tonight especially is our pastor and his wife. Uh, I just ask that you would uh, be with Donna, uh, be with Kip as they go through uh, another round of these treatments, Lord. Um, I ask that you would help us as a church body to uh, rally around them. I ask that your Holy Spirit would uh, just pour out your comfort on them. Lord, they, Lord, we know that there are times that our own words fail on the ears of those that we give them because sometimes this world can press in on us. But we know, Lord, we know without a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, that you are faithful and even when we cannot see what's around the corner you're never caught off guard you're never surprised and and we know that you love us more than we love ourselves and we know that you have better for us than we could plan in a thousand years lord and i just ask for kip and donna that you would just uh, comfort them and as a church body that we would uh, all grow closer together through this, that you would uh, have glory from this, that your name would be made greater, Lord, that, that your praise would raise higher than the tears, Lord, higher than the cries, higher than the darkest nights and the deepest of valleys, Lord, that, that you would reign supreme even when the Rains of this world pour down around us. Lord, that we would find comfort in you and you alone. Lord, I thank you for my church family here tonight. Lord, those who were not able to join us again, I just pray for them and their safety and their well-being. And I pray that as we dig into your word tonight, that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would refine us, that you would bring us closer to where you would have us to be, that you would work in us like a sanctifying fire, Lord, that you would just cleanse us and purify us and bring us closer to you, closer to the image of your Son. That is the good that we seek and long after, Lord. I thank you for Christ. 
I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the tomb that was found empty and the Savior who reigns over the world. It's in Him and for Him and by Him and through Him. Lord, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, I want to go over the details that we covered last week. And I'm going to go through them kind of rapid fire. Last week, we, it, was, it was probably seemed very fast last week. Uh, I know I spoke with Dad uh, a day or so after, and he was still kind of you know, following along, kind of studying to try to pull it all together. And I hope everybody was like that. I hope that we were all kind of, you know, uh, sometimes it can feel a little overloaded, but um, it's there, and that's why we took the time last week to dig through it in the way that we did. It's so that when I read today and it takes me like two minutes to go through these details, you'll know that I didn't just pull these things out of the air. This is not just something that I made up. But it's something that if we spend time in God's Word, that we see these things and we can kind of bring them together. I think these are important because uh, Paul writing the book of Romans, I think it's important for us to understand uh, all that he has been through at the point in time in his life that he's writing uh, and everything that's kind of led up to that point. So when we hit some of those passages of text that can oftentimes seem very strange and out of place, that we can understand the state of mind that led Paul there. And and I think that in knowing that and understanding the things that he had been through up to this point, uh, that it will shine an even greater light on uh, on the, the book and the gospel as a whole that we're going to look at. So um, today I want to kind of give you a game plan of what we've got. I know we have a business meeting this evening, so um, we're going to try to try to keep it. <laughs> Dave's laughing over there. I was going to say we're going to try to keep it within a, you know, a short span of time. We'll see how that goes. Um, Dennis is already threatened to cut the mic off after 20 minutes. So if it seemed fast last time, don't hold your breath because I got a lot to get in in 20 minutes. No. Um, so just to cover the details of what we kind of dug through Scripture last time and looked at, uh, we were talking about Paul, the person who has written this book of Romans. And here are the details that we saw uh, from the scripture that we looked at last time. He was born in Tarsus and Cilicia. He was raised and educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. He was an Israelite and, the, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a citizen of Rome from birth. He had family who were still in Jerusalem at the time. He was multilingual and multicultural. His trade was... A tent, that of a tent maker, and he heavily persecuted the church. Um, some details that lead us from the time that he was converted to the time that he writes Romans. Um, I want to give you some kind of time spans because we end up where, where he's about 50, he's in his 50s when he writes the book of Romans. So around 30 to 31 uh, AD, we find the Damascus Road. He, he encounters Christ, and Christ changes everything about him. In 32 AD, uh, two years he spends in Arabia and Damascus. Uh, and again, these are just the details that we looked in Scripture last time to, to pull out. Uh, he makes a trip after three years to Jerusalem. Uh, then he goes back to kind of his homeland, or where he was born, um, and spends some time in Syria and Cilicia, which is where uh, Barnabas comes to get him, and Barnabas comes to get him, brings him 
uh, to Antioch. They do kind of a little short, short-term short mission there to take some money to Jerusalem. Um, then we find them coming back to Antioch, uh, coming back to Antioch um, where they go on what, what you would call their, the first, Paul's first major missionary journey. Um, this is, starts around 47 A.D. Um, they then return to Antioch at the end of this. And that's what I mentioned last time, that you could kind of think of Antioch as kind of his home church, his home base where he's kind of going out on mission. He returns to Antioch, and then they quickly go to Jerusalem. Um, so a second time to Jerusalem. After they're finished there, um, Paul and Barnabas split. Uh, we talked about why last week. Uh, Paul takes up Silas, and they go on Paul's second missionary journey along the way they come in contact with timothy and luke on the second missionary journey he writes the books of first and second thessalonians possibly galatians but uh i i tend to think that that galatians is like, likely written uh, on his uh, kind of early into his third missionary journey uh so we come we come back he has a third missionary journey um and in this Along this time frame, this is probably 55 A.D., uh, he begins it. Galatians is written. First and Second Corinthians is written. Second Corinthians is where we kind of left off looking at Paul's boasting last week. He was boasting in all the junk that he had been through in this life. Um, and then he writes the book of Romans. The book of Romans is likely written somewhere between 57 and 58 A.D., and Paul is somewhere in his early 50s. At this time, to kind of give you a picture of what happens after the book of Romans is written, he goes, you can call it his fourth missionary journey. The large majority of this time, though, he was in chains. Um, this is from 60 to 62 A.D. On, his, on this fourth missionary journey in which, like I say, most of the time he's in chains, uh, he writes the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Titus, First and Second Timothy, and Philemon. Um, around 67 A.D., so let's get the picture in our head. So 57, 58, the book of Romans is written. Somewhere around 67 A.D., uh, Paul has died during the reign uh, of Nero. He was probably early 60s, 62 to 63, somewhere in that time span uh, when he died. So about 10 years after the writing of Romans, somewhere in, somewhere in there, uh, Paul goes to be with Christ. Um, so that's where we kind of left off last week. This week, the plan is, so we're not going to go, we're not going to go and start the verse by verse through Romans yet. Um, this week, we're going to do kind of a high level picture of the book as a whole. So before we start digging in and just go Romans 1 through the end, what I want us to do is kind of step back and and, and I want to tell you kind of the breakdown of the book, what's going on in the book, um, tell you why this book is so amazing. And I've m- made mention of this a couple of times. This book is, is literally the reason that you're here and not in a Catholic church. Like it's the, it's the reading and studying of this book and God's Holy Spirit moving in the hearts of men that calls the Protestant Reformation. You are Protestants. You are in a Protestant church today because of this book, right? And because of some of the things that we're going to see early on in this book. So um, I, want to, I want to kind of touch on that a little bit. So we're going to look at the outline of Romans. We're going to look at some key verses in Romans um, for each of these major sections of the outline uh, that I'm going to give you. And then uh, we're going to kind of end with some questions regarding the book of Romans. And the questions that I've kind of, I've got them here, these are the questions that after the first kind of major study that I'd gone through, before I'd ever taught this uh, before I'd ever taught this to uh, my class and 
uh, long before I ever knew that I would be a preacher, I'd written these questions down, and as I was kind of preparing for this, I thought this would probably be good um, to kind of just throw these questions out there to get you thinking ahead of time at some of the things that you're going to come in contact with. So like I say, the questions that are going to be brought up that I'm going to bring up here um, are questions that I, came to, that I came to be kind of wondering and considering and, and, and trying to dig into for probably five or so years to figure these things out, to figure out uh, what, what the book of Romans and what Paul has got to say about, about these questions. So when I'm bring these questions up, they may seem, you know, to some of you, they may seem simple. Um, as we get into the book, I can assure you that they became questions because they, they, don't, uh, they don't seem as simple once you get digging into this. So, um, so that's kind of the idea for today. Um, Martin Luther, who knows who Martin Luther is? Again, I mentioned the Protestant Reformation. He's kind of the guy that started that whole thing. This is what Martin Luther has to say. Uh, this is a quote from him about this book. He says, This epistle is the chief book of the New Testament, the purest gospel. It deserves not only to be known word for word by every Christian, but to be the subject of his meditation day by day. Again, I say the reason that we're in a Protestant church today and and the reason that we hold to some pretty significant differences from uh, the Catholic Church is due to some things that we're going to find in this book, right? So, so in his reading of this, and, it, and we'll hit it early on uh, in our study of this, we're going to come to to kind of the head. So, if you've ever wondered why do we go to a a, a Baptist church or Protestant church instead of a Catholic church, um, as we go through this study, we'll we'll hit on that. Alright, so um, let's start first with the outline. Um, if you just open up your book, we're just going to kind of look. So if you've got a pen or a marker or something like that, or you want, you're taking notes or something, take note of, of this. I'm going to give you kind of the major sections and where they start and end in the book. Okay, so the sections don't necessarily end on chapter endings. Okay, so that's why I'm, I'm kind of pointing this out here. So we're going to point those out quickly. Then we're going to look at what I would consider key concepts or key ideas. So looking at the big picture of Romans today, right? So we're going to look at these big sections. We're going to look at what I would consider to be kind of a big thought or big idea that we're going to get out of each of these sections. Then we're going to ask some questions, and then we'll be done. So it shouldn't take us too long, right? We're good. Everybody everybody ready? All right? So the first major section, which is what I would call the intro, right? That's very original. The intro starts in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and it ends in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. So the, the introduction to the book, about 17 verses here. Uh, the next major section of the book, and again, if you were to go through commentaries or something like this, you may find some variations as to where people would break the sections up. These are probably what I would consider more generalized. These are bigger sections, and each of these sections could likely be broken down into smaller pieces, but just for the sake of not having like a 20-point sermon tonight, uh, we're going to break it down into some into some. Some bigger sections of Scripture. So the first section of Scripture that we come into, so Paul opens up, introduces himself, introduces kind of the purpose of the writing of this book, this letter to the church at Rome. Uh, and then he immediately starts off in the very next verse of chapter 1. So chapter 1, verse 18, is where the next major section goes. And this section goes up to 3 and 20. 
right? So if you're marking it or highlighting it or something, um, the next major section is Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. So that section, kind of the title or the heading that I would give to this, is I, and if you read through it, you'll, you'll see why, is this is, I call this section the problem of sin, right? So Paul introduces himself to, tells the people that he's going to be telling them the gospel, what the gospel is, and and immediately goes into this problem of sin, right? He covers the gamut here, and we're going to to see that uh, when we come and look at kind of the the key scripture for this. So the next major section, so introduction, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 17, the problem of sin, starting at verse 18, going through verse 20, justification through faith. This is the next major section that we're going to look at as we go through this book. It starts in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and goes through Romans chapter 5, verse 21. All right, so Romans 3, verse 21, through Romans chapter 5, verse 21. Now, we're going to cover in the in this study, if you don't know what justification is, you've never heard that word before, uh, we're going to discuss that as we dig into this. So don't don't feel like, oh no, he's used this word, I've got no clue what it is. If you don't, that's cool, we're going to cover it. We're going to probably spend many, many weeks in covering. But in the major sections, what I want us to see is there's this major theme that is going throughout the first half of the book, Right? This is, he's, he's teaching and preaching the gospel, and he starts with sin, and then he goes on to justification, right? And how we're justified before God. The next, so that goes, again, I'll say in case you're writing it down and you missed it, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, through Romans chapter 5, verse 21. That's the major section where you could look at uh, justification. One thing that I'll tell you if you're studying through this, the section's tend not to just be a, you go from one verse to the next and it's a completely new train of thought. He flows these things together very, very, very well. So what we'll find as we're going through verse by verse is that when we get towards the end of chapter 5, he's already introducing some of the ideas that he's going to kind of expound on throughout the next chapter. So one thing leads to another. That's something that we can expect as we go through this book. So the next idea or next major section that we look at starts in Romans chapter 6 verse 1 and goes all the way through Romans chapter 8 verse 39 and there's two things that are really going on in this okay so we've we're going to have covered justification we're going to step over into what's called sanctification again if you don't get that word right now that's that's cool we're going to we're going to cover it. We're going to spend much time on it. But in this same section, we, we see two things that are, that are very, very, very closely tied together. One, sanctification being the purification process that's happening in the believer. And we're going to find that this idea of glorification or the hope that we have for glorification is synced and tied in so close to this that I wouldn't even break it apart. Right? Um, we're going to see as we hit one of the key passages of text in that section tonight that literally he uses kind of a present tense or uh, a past tense for speaking about uh, our state of, of being glorified. He, he, he literally says that we are glorified. Right? Not that we one day will see that happen, but he uses a tense literally that would have us to believe that it's already happened, which is going to, I think, cause us to ask some really interesting questions. 
Alright, so that again, the, the idea of sanctification leading to glorification starts Romans chapter 6 verse 1, goes all the way through uh, the end of chapter 8 uh, to 8 and 39. After that we come uh, to probably what is what I would consider one of the hardest sections of this book. Now there's going to be two places along the way that are, that there are going to be there's going to be some difficult things come up. One chapter 7 of Romans is a place that that as we start as we start digging into this book, chapter 7 for me teaching it and, and making the bridge between the the 6th chapter and the 8th chapter with that one kind of sitting in the middle, it's going to provide for some interesting for for some interesting study. This the the second and probably the biggest and most difficult one to teach through and to kind of get through is going to be this next section. Um, when I first went through this, and the note that I'm looking off here is uh, the notes that I'd kind of written down when I the first time that I'd ever gone through this, and I was thinking, what would be a good name for this section, which starts in Romans chapter nine verse one and ends in Romans chapter eleven verse thirty six. So this end, these start at the beginning of chapters and end at the chapter endings. Um, the name that I gave to it the first time that I went through is I just called it the scope of grace, right? And when we think about the scope of something, like what what does it cover? What's encompassed by? It? What's enclosed in this idea of grace? Um, as I've as I've been studying and continue to study through this book over the years, the idea at least is a singular word that that I think of now when I think of this section of chapter. As, and and I consider it the bridge between. So I would call it literally the bridge. Of scripture between the theological aspect of what we believe and hold to and the practical aspect of how we live it out in the real world. So I consider what we see in 9 through 11 there to be something that bridges us between what we know and how we live, right? Which again, if you've ever read through the book of Romans or you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about chapters 9 through 11 and what is kind of discussed in there, some of the concepts in there, you may think, why, why do I consider it a, a bridge between these two? And I think the concept that's going to fall out of this, of the sovereignty of God, is going to be what helps us bridge between the two ideas of what we know about God and how we live that out in our daily lives. So um, we're going to cover that, again, the scope of grace or the bridge between uh, theology and, and life in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 uh, all the way through the end of chapter 11. The next major section that we're going to come to is going to begin in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and it's going to go about halfway through chapter 15 to verse 13. And this is just the Christian life. This is practical Christian living. So Paul's pouring out the gospel, and then here in, ver- in chapter 12, he's going to say, therefore, or something you know translated similar in your Bibles to, therefore, because of everything that we've seen already, now we can live a life worthy, right? Now we can go on and run this race that we've been called to. Now we can live the Christian life. So to get to chapter 12, how many, how many chapters do we have to go through? 11, all right? So there's a lot to say that to say there's going to be a lot that we're going to cover. And when he says, therefore, you're going to be thinking back to what February, what's today's date? Eighth, ninth of 2015. And you're going to be like, okay, so we're in February of 2017. How are we going to, you know, I, no, I'm just teasing. 
I'm just saying, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I've got like five minutes left tonight, though. Or I might be over my time. Um, so when we get there, there's going to be a lot that we've covered that's then going to be in, included in that therefore, right? So I want us to, I want us to kind of just be considering that in the weeks, months, years leading up to when we actually get there. Um, so Christian life, practical Christian living, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through uh, 15 and 13. And then we get the conclusion of the book uh, in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 14, going through the end of chapter 16. Um, so that's the major sections, right? So I'm going to read them off one more time just quickly if you, if you, in case you missed something along the way. We've got the introduction. It starts in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, going through verse 17. We've got the problem of sin, which starts in Romans 1, chapter 18, and goes through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. We've got justification through faith, which starts in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, going through Romans chapter 5, verse 21. We have sanctification that leads to glorification through the power of the Holy Spirit, starting in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, going through chapter 8, verse 39. We have the scope of grace, or the bridge between the theological and the practical, starting in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, going through chapter 11, verse 36. We have practical Christian living, or the Christian life in general, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, going through 15 and 13. And then we have the conclusion of the book and the remaining passages of text. So out of this, what I want to do, we've got what? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. So tonight we're going to look at seven major passages uh, that if you wanted to get a big picture idea of what we're going to be looking at as we look at this book, it's going to be kind of the idea of these things kind of encompassed in these seven passages of text. And saying that, I'll say that I found it really, really, really difficult to find only one passage of text or one kind of run of text there to encompass all that we find in these chapters. Because as we get into it, what we're going to find is that, that you can literally start in one verse and 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 Y'all think I'm kidding about it taking, like, we could, it could take years, right? If it takes me five years in my personal time, imagine me getting up here talking to you, right? So it could take us years. So in saying that, there's a lot of meat in here that as we're studying through Scripture, don't be surprised if if you yourself find yourself fixating on a particular passive text, that's a good thing, right? So if I'm preaching and, you, and, and it's like two minutes in and you're like reading a passage of text, and, and I've gone on past that. Or so. That's good. That's cool. I'm fine with that. Don't daydream too much. But if you're like stuck in Scripture and I go on, like let the Holy Spirit work in that. Um, I would say, man, alive, set up camp in this book. It is a great place to be. Um, so that being said, in the first major section, in the introduction of this book, we find what could be when it's unlocked in our minds, when our hearts understand what this passage of text means and says this passage of text is the passage of text that frees the mind of all the things that had kind of been tagged on uh, along the years in the church that led up to Catholicism in the way that it was when the Reformation happened. So in this, we're going to look at two verses, verse 16 and 17 of chapter one. This is what I would say encompasses Paul's introduction here. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, 
that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We don't have time to dig into all of the particulars of this verse tonight, but trust me, next week when we start Romans chapter 1 and start digging through, when we get here, we're going to spend some time here. And I would ask you in the lead up to that, if you would, to just be kind of letting that churn in your mind and in your heart. I'm going to read it one more time. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And for the sake of reminding us last week, I want us to understand what he's talking about that he wouldn't be ashamed of. Because we, we'd today be like, well, what is there to be ashamed about? Just give it some time, right? As the world starts creeping in and taking away the privileges and the rights that, that you think that you have, and just see how shameful it is to be a Christian in the next couple of decades, right? But on top of that, last week we read about Paul's life and he writes in the book of 2 Corinthians, his boasting, and what does he boast in? The most shameful of things, right? So he's not ashamed of what? A kind of gospel that, get, that leaves you shipwrecked, beaten half to death. Just This gospel is embarrassing. I, w- I want to I tell you that. I want to tell you that. That if, if you are not called by Christ... And He is not truly raised from the dead. And we go through our whole lives believing what this book says about Him. And it's false. Then we were fools for it. And we're most to be pitied for it. Right? So there's much that this world would show us that would be shameful in a crucified Savior. Right? But... Paul says, and we know that he's experienced all these things, so he's not some young kid like saying, I ain't ashamed of this gospel, and two days later he changed his mind, right? Because he got beat a little bit for the gospel, right? So when Paul says he's not ashamed of this gospel, uh, let's understand that Paul's lived through many things that would bring shame to many people and many families, and, and he leads off in this, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and he's not ashamed of the gospel, not because of his own might or his own power. He's not ashamed, for it is the power of God for salvation. It's God's power. The gospel that we're talking about here, it's God's power, God's work. It's his power to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. Some, some will, will translate from faith to faith. All right, we're going to discuss what that means because that can be a little confusing passage of text. So when, we, when we're kind of digging through verse by verse, we'll get that. The righteous shall live by faith. So Paul's introduction, he's laying us off that he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's telling us a little piece of the gospel. This is kind of his thesis for the entire book. And from this, he sets off into the problem of sin. So this gospel that he's preaching, he preaches first, as he starts off into it, the sin problem. So when we, when we consider the gospel, we cannot consider the gospel without the sinfulness of the world, right? So what he does in the, ne- in the next major section is go off to systematically show how both those who have the law and those who are ignorant of the law in no way are empowered by the law to live righteous lives. Right? Because of the sinfulness of humanity. Right? So there's a major problem at the end of this. 
right? So if you thought that you sought after God, if you thought that you came to God of your own whatever, right? Then deal with this Scripture. Chapter 3, we're going to start reading, and he's actually quoting Old Testament in this. Chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse 10. As it is written, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one, friends. You are not the exception to this. Right? The, the, what we're going to find is as Paul goes through this, he does a good job of showing us how not a single one can stand on their own merits. Right? Their throat, in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I, I pray too that as we go through this, for those of you who are in the Ecclesiastes study, uh, that you don't quickly forget that. There were some major things in that study that we were talking about when we were talking about the fear of God and how none feared God. And now we find here again the same idea that's going to come up uh, through this text, um, which leads us to a big question. So if no one is righteous before God, whether or not they're ignorant of the law or whether or not they have the law and they just can't keep the law, then what hope is there? And that's the next section. So he goes quickly from this, literally none is righteous, not even one, down into the same chapter. Uh, a few verses later, we're going to look at verse 22. Actually, let's look first at verse 21. Um, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So the next major section that we get into, that can summarize it. He then goes on for uh, some time there giving you the details of what he's kind of laid out in a few verses. Um, and then we come to the, to the, uh, major se- the next major section, which is sanctification leading to glorification. Um, and the passage of text that we're going to kind of see as the key verse here is actually towards the end of this. Um, we're going to be looking, and I've, man, I've, I've talked about this verse so many, so many different times and so many different ways. And uh, this one was really a no-brainer to pick for this section because it kind of summarizes everything so well and so much is packed into such a little space. Um, are we looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 28 for this, this next major section, the section being sanctification, ultimately leading to uh, glorification? So, kind of the next passage of text there. 
Um, and we and we know, all right. And we're again don't have time to dig into it all tonight. But trust me, when we get there, we will. But uh, every word matters. Every detail matters. I want us to see this. And we know this is not a doubt. This is not something questionable. This is not something maybe or possibly. This is something that we as believers should know. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Wow. If you've never read that or memorized that or set that in your heart, let that be one of those passages of text that you meditate on daily. And we know. Do we? No. Because what Paul is saying here is that at least you should. Right? The knowledge is there for us. The knowledge that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things, not you know every good thing. We're talking every good, every evil, every weapon formed against you is working ultimately for your good in Christ. Right? And we're gonna we're gonna again spend some time there. And he continues on. He he he. And and I don't want to just stop in twenty eight because he really gives the kind of the the foundation of why we can know in the in the following verses we can know this for those whom he foreknew he also predestined. I'm going to just stop there because I chose a particular passage a particular verse of text that uses a very scary word to most people who knows what that word means. And I want to tell you that when we get there we're going to spend a whole lot of time on it. When we get to here, this is going to lead into the next, literally the next, like three chapters worth of studying that we're going to do. This idea that's kind of encompassed in this one word that, again, at least from the conversations that I tend to have with people, whenever you hear this word, like we get defensive of something, right? Well, what I want us to say is the word is there. This is not words that we make up and place in Scripture. Right? So it's not a matter of whether you believe in it or not. Right? It's a matter of what is the truth about it. Right? So that's what we're going to dig into when we get there. Is we're going to dig into what is the truth. What does this word mean? Right? And it's going to be fun. It is. I'm serious. It's a heart attack. Like this is it's it's going to be good when we get there. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Because the reason that it's so cool is it didn't just like this is not like an arbitrary thing that he does, right? He's not just like you predestined, you predestined, you predestined. Like Oprah went for, you know, like everybody gets a predestined. You know, it's not that kind of thing, right? So what we find here is that it's for a very specific thing. He also predestined, right? For he. For, let's start back in the very first part of that verse. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Do you know what the ultimate ending of that word that we are so scared of is? Is that for you, Christian, for you, believer, for you who's been called and loves God, you will end there. Because God has said it. And in that, I think, why do we get so scared of words? When God's Word especially 
gives us a hope beyond words. So here's the, here's the thing, uh, kind of a little secret I want to put out there for you, that, that hopefully by the time we get there, that everything that I'm going to say once we get there, you're already going to believe anyway. <laughs> so I wanna, when we start next week in one one, I want to let you know that this verse is in mine, right? <laughs> so see if you can catch it. Right. See if you can catch it. See if you can catch his leading there. So when we get that, trust me, when we get there and we start digging into this, ain't none of you going to be mad at me. Right. Because when we land there and when we see the truth of this scripture, you're going to live lives differently. Right. You're going to live lives differently because of the truth is kind of encompassing that scripture, because, man, it's so amazing. The truth there. So. Conform to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. There's that word again. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's happened. Right? That's the word, right? So follow me here. Follow me here. Do you see where that ends he doesn't say he will possibly, maybe, if you're lucky, glorify. There is a sense in which you today have already been. Do y'all get that? Do y'all understand that? If you don't, we'll get, we'll get there. Right? We're going to painstakingly work through this book so that hopefully when we get there you'll get it then if you don't get it now right so sanctification leading to glorification and then we have in chapter 9 10 and 11 this bridge between these these really like deep thoughts about what's happened in Christ and through Christ and for Christ, these thoughts are being bridged over to the practical aspect of how do we live our lives. And the verse that I want to end with is what we should come to when we come to the end of this is, is uh, kind of His outpouring of worship at the end of chapter 11, starting in uh, verse 33. So if I could, even though that I've already told you this is going to be one of the hardest I kind of preach through when we get to section 9, 10, and 11 there. I'm already picked the end of it as kind of the verse that I think covers the whole idea of what we're getting to when we get there. And he ends in this way. So as he's kind of closing this major section of the text, and he's about to go off into the practical aspects of how we live as Christian living, and he's reflecting on all that we will have learned when we get to this point. This is the, this is kind of Paul just bursts out in praise here in verse 33 through the end of that chapter. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. That passage of text to me is probably one of the, one of the most amazing passages of text of praise uh, 
uh, that I find in all of Scripture. It's probably one of my one of the ones that is dearest to my heart. Just the 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 magnitude of God and and all that He's done and how it is literally impossible for us to know Him completely. And who would want to know? Who would want to serve and know a God that you could know completely? That seems to me to be no God at all. So in chapter, uh, the next major section of text that we're going to be going through is going to be the practical aspect of how to live out this gospel, how Christians live. And the next piece of text that we're going to look at to kind of get us an idea of what this major section looks like is going to be uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2. So if you wanted to get an idea of what is the Christian aspect, how does that go uh, verse 12, verse or chapter 12, excuse me. Verse 1 reads like this. I appeal to you, therefore, that's the therefore that I was mentioning earlier because of all that we will have seen and studied leading up to this point. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that will lead up again to about midway through chapter 15, and then we'll come to the conclusion of this book, and there's one verse uh, that's again a quotation of an Old Testament or Old Testament passage uh, that we're gonna that we're gonna kind of see is kind of the summary or the idea of how we would leave this book, and that's gonna be uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 21, and he says again here, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Right? So the idea is that as we leave out of this book, we're going to be left with this. And one thing that I want to... We'll get into more detail when we get here, of course. But one thing that I want us to pay close attention to of is the certainty of this statement. Right? I want you to get this picture when we think of the way that we serve God, when we go out and we do work for Him, and when we get the gospel and we start grasping it more and more in our lives and it starts working through, it works out in a very particular way. And we see here that this is a, this is a true statement that's spoken in the Old Testament, requoted here in the New Testament, holds true today, right? Get the certainty of this, that there's no maybes or possibilities here. Those who have never been told of Him will see. They will see. And I want you to understand that he did not end up getting to the place that he thought he was going to get to. Right? But that statement still stands. Right? Why? Because God's plan and God's work is bigger than the life of a single man or woman. And what He's doing in each and every one is leading to the next. So that at the end, you won't say, well, Paul did it all. Or Peter. Or name whoever you want to name. You say, God did it. Right? But it will come to be. Again, I want to look at the certainty of this. Those who have never been told of Him will see. 
will see. Not might see, will see. And those who have never heard will understand. What, how, how are they going to understand if they've never heard? What, what they will hear. Right? And they will understand. Because there's a work going on. That's bigger than an individual. That's bigger than a person. That's bigger than just a single church in a single place. That covers all history. And all time. Encompasses all stories that have ever been told. Leading to one ending. God glorified. Through the work that He is doing and that He is sure to complete. So this is what we're going to be going through over the next however much time that it takes us to get there. So some I want to leave with just some questions. Um, we've got it. Hey, that was pretty good timing. Um, I guess depending on who you ask. Uh, <laughs> got like 30 questions here now. So, here's some questions, and I'm going to kind of just go from these. These are ones, like I say, that I'd come uh, and kind of ask as I'd been studying this book, um, some things that had come up along the way. So, um, I'll try to expound on the thought or idea behind the question so that you can kind of, you can kind of see some of the things that we're going to cover. Because the questions that I pose here, uh, we, will, uh, we will at least uh, attempt to uh, answer in, in a reasonable way. Uh, so first question, what's the purpose of the law, right? So I, I ask this because what we're going to find out very quickly is that the law never saved a single person, right? The law never saved a single person. And I, want, I want us to get that because I don't know that we always get that, right? Because it tends to be when we think about Old and New Covenants, like we think, well, those in the Old Testament, they were saved because they did sacrifices and because they kept the law, and in no way did anyone ever step foot into heaven because they kept the law. Why? Because we're going to find out not a single person, apart from Christ, ever kept the whole law. Right? So what purpose, then, does the law play? Right? And we're going to see Paul wrestling with this through the text. And he does this in, in a way where he almost poses these questions to us, right? The style that he goes through through this book is a very interesting style because literally every question that you would ask, he asks ahead of time. So that you can't be like, you know, I got questions that he can't wrestle with. He's going to throw them out there and then he's going to show you and lead you to the conclusion in these things. So one of the questions that would, well, if the law never saved anybody, what good was it, Right? Because what we're going to find is, in fact, when the law came on the scene, sin blew up, right? We're going to see Paul actually says the words, or uses the phrase that sin was dead before the law came, right? And when the law came, sin rose to life and became even more sinful. So you would then question, well, why would you do the law in the first place? What is the purpose of the law? So this is going to be something that we wrestle with and that we come to the conclusion of so that by the end of this study, you won't be going out thinking that you're going to heaven because you're a good Christian, right? You, you, you'll say, well, I have my faith placed in the one good man, right? And the one who was raised from the dead for me, right? And not in any works that you do, not in any like good deeds that you've lined up afterwards, right? There's no place for that. There's no place for boasting at the cross. Um, the next question that I had is, what's the purpose of faith, 
right? That's pretty straightforward. We're going to see faith from the very get-go, and then we see these kind of words used from faith to faith, or from faith for faith, those kind of things. So what is the purpose of faith? Like, how does faith work? Um, another question that we're going to come to, um, again, we'll, this is kind of all-encompassing this idea of the law, faith, um, and the place that they have and, and what purpose each one serves. Um, the question of how were Old Testament saints saved, as I was coming through this and, and wrestling with this, this is one of the questions that I came up because before, again, I'll, a lot of times I'll use things and put things out that were the way that I thought at one point in time. So like, there was a point in time for me that if you'd have asked me how were people in the Old Testament saved, I would have answered to you, they, well, they did their sacrifices, right? And what we find is that Scripture does not say that. It says something completely different. So how then were Old Testament saints saved? We'll dig into that through this study also. What is salvation? Now this one, we tend to throw that word around and and sometimes we mean one thing by it and sometimes we mean another thing by it. And kind of the two ideas that I have when I, when I ask this question to myself and as I pose it to you is that when you think of salvation, do you think of a singular event in your history? Like when you refer to your salvation, do you say, I was saved? Or would you say something more like, I'm being saved? Right? Or would you say something like, I will one day be saved? Right? Because the way in which we think about these things, oftentimes all three of those we'll find will be true. Right? So this is where these ideas of justification, sanctification, glorification, these words kind of come in to help us play into this. Because here's what I want to tell you. You were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Right? Those three statements all are true, right? But what do we mean by it? Because oftentimes we don't mean those second two. Oftentimes when we say, we, we will say, I was saved, and then if I say, are you being saved? Then you'll be like, no, I was, right? Well, in fact, we find something else told to us in Scripture about self, salvation. So the idea of salvation being a process that's being worked out, that you were, in fact, justified, and the idea of that is, important and you are now being sanctified as a believer and that you will one day be glorified uh, given a new body so some of these ideas kind of come out of that question um, the next question that I have um, may seem simple uh, I, the question is what did Christ do and clearly if I ask you what did Christ do well you could you could go and read through the gospels and you could uh, kind of Give me a list of things that he did. But in this, I, I mean the effect of what Christ did. Now, I, I will say this. If I, if I had a gun put to my head and somebody said, you can only have one book out of the whole Bible that you'll ever be able to read again. Do you know what book I would choose? The book of Romans, right? And then you'd be like, what about the Gospels, right? Now, I love the Gospels, and I hope nobody ever makes me choose between one or the other. But in the gospel, we see the life of Christ. And in the book of Romans, we see the effect of that, right? Like the, the idea of what did Christ do? Not just well, he walked and then on this day he died and on this day he rose again. But why? Why any of that was needed to begin with? Could it have happened any other way? This is what I mean by like, what did Christ do? Because what we'll find also through this is there was no other way for you to be made right with God. 
Right? There was no other way. So these are some things in that question. What did Christ do? Uh, what does salvation look like? Is another question that I had in this. I mean, when I'm saved, is that is it just that's it? Or do, should we expect that someone's saved, that something comes forth from that? Right? Like, put it kind of in perspective. If I'm saved at like 20, and then I go and I'm like 80, and I look at my 20-year-old self and I look at my 80-year-old self, should I not expect something different? Right? Should I not expect something different? Right? How does that take place? Right? What's the work that goes on there? Who is it dependent on? Again, is it dependent on you? Do you do better? Or is it dependent on God? Like, Can we look back over 40 years of our life and say God did something? Right? God did something. And that's the kind of the question that we're going to dig into when we get there. So fruit, evidence, change in our life. Uh, the question that I, another question that I have is we go through this book, um, you'll see why I ask this question. The question, what is sin? As we study through the book of Romans, Paul almost, he almost personifies it. Right? Like he almost gives it traits or attributes. Like there's some places in this, in this book of Romans when I read it, and it almost sounds like sin's out to get you. Like sin is something that's like conniving. And we ain't talking about Satan. Now we'll get on that again too. Read through the whole, we'll go ahead and get on it now. Read through the whole book. You're gonna find it once. It's in the very last chapter, and God's crushing him, right? So let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. We, we got a whole book on salvation and Satan is a footnote in it. And in that footnote, things are looking up. Because God's going to be crushing him. Right? So that, that was absolute side note there. So when I talk about the sin being personified, don't hear me saying Satan. Right? Because he doesn't say Satan. Okay? Um, hear me saying sin. He, he, as we read through this, we see sin to be something... Um, and it's it it's it's awfully it's awfully scary and and as we as we get into it we're just we'll ask that question like what is sin um question another question that comes from that what's what power does sin have over a christian so that's a little different so what is sin and what power does it have over the redeemed right those who we see uh god calling and working and all that stuff um, what sin? What power does sin have over the redeemed? Another question that we'll find ourselves uh, asking is, and I've kind of re, restated this um, from the original. I'll read it to you the way that I originally wrote it out, and I'll re, read it to you in the way that I would restate it. So uh, this, again, the first time that I was going through it, I, I wrote this. What does it mean to be free from the law, yet a slave to Christ? Um, the way that I would reword it is when I say the law there, what I mean by the law is Paul uses the phrase the law of sin, right? Um, which is not the law of God. And when we get into chapter 7, that little area there, that's where that phrase is going to come up where he starts talking about the law of sin, this law that he sees within himself, that whole, that whole run of Scripture there. Um, so when I, when I ask that, what does it mean to be free from the law of sin, yet a slave to Christ? What is, what is that? What's going on in there? Uh, another uh, thing that I wrote down here, uh, question, what is election? Again, you can't go through this book and dodge that. Um, 
you'd have to dodge a whole section of it. And, and uh, very truthfully, um, the whole idea seems to be very interweaved uh, into, every, into every aspect of Paul's thinking. So it would be hard to escape that uh, idea. So when I say election, um, I'm talking about God's sovereignty, um, and I'm talking about that word that, that we seem to be uh, so scared of oftentimes of uh, pre- predestining something. Um, two more questions that I have from this. I, I probably have a thousand others, but these are the ones that I first wrote down. Uh, what should we do with our Christian life, right? Like after we come to know Christ, then what? We get the then what in this book, right? Not only do we get the truth of the gospel, we get what should happen to us when the gospel takes root and grows, right? So what should we do with our Christian life? And then we're going to see the whole idea through this is uh, faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone. And the question I have is, is faith alone enough? Um, The conclusion that we will come to, I want to go ahead and give you that, is yes. Um, But as I was going through it, that was just something that I wanted to wrestle with in my own mind. Um, So that's kind of... It for today, um, we can close out, and I know we got the business meeting later, but we can close out. And uh, if anybody wants to come pray, or you know, if you want to pray in your pew, um, worship God. Um, and I would ask uh, just through the study that you would keep me in your prayers as I prep for this, um, and and pray for one another in it also that God would. Uh, that God would do an awesome, an awesome work among us. That He would just uh, refine our understanding of the work that He's done um, and the work that He's doing, and the hope that we have uh, in Him. Um, so let's 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 worship.